I'm Gordon Stewart, and this is episode 21 of Tales from Weird Scotland. Vanished lands, ghost towns, lost islands, and places that never were. What is sand? It's the accreted dust of a countless billion minerals, organisms and ecosystems. It's the material of time. It's no wonder we fill our hour glasses with the remnants of all that has gone before. Sand moves at different speeds than we do. When observed over a period of years, dunes can be seen to roll like waves on the sea. Even on smaller timescales, dune movements can make navigating great dune seas treacherous. The landscape is always shifting, obscuring paths. Sand is not generated on human timescales. To us with our mayfly lifetimes, Grains of sand are finite, and yet one day, on a long enough timescale perhaps, we will become part of its process, forming the beaches of future landscapes. Our shoulders become the rolling dunes of future deserts. Like snow, there is an annihilating indifference to large bodies of sand. Single grains have a beautiful insignificance to them, but when countless billions move with the will of wind or water, they are capable of overwhelming and engulfing everything before them. Of changing landscapes, and indeed of creating landscapes where there were none before. Buried now under two metres of sand, the township of Brew, on the southwest of the mainland of the Shetland Islands, is a testament to this unrelenting force of nature. For hundreds of years before its destruction, sand blowing into the settlement from the nearby Quendale Beach had been a fairly regular occurrence. Although vexing, it was little more than an annoyance. Indeed, a Dutch atlas from 1654 shows Brew as a prominent settlement. However, by the mid-1700s, the township had been lost to the sands. The Reverend George Lowe in 1774 described what remained of Brew as an Arabian desert in miniature. This didn't happen overnight, The sand would have been a heightened nuisance at first, blowing in with stronger winds than usual, getting into the people's hair and clothing, causing discomfort to the livestock. Little by little it would gain entry to homes, through gaps in doors and windows, piling up in corners, getting into food. No matter how much they swept, more always seemed to take its place, piling up against doorways, filling in deeply trodden paths, 
eventually it would begin to swallow walls and drown crops. Movement would be impeded and the work required to sustain the township and the people in it would become harder and harder. And still the winds blew and the sands came. There would have come a time when the people of the township would have had to weigh up their options. Was the effort to maintain their home greater than they could endure? There was no sign of the winds dropping, nor of the sands ceasing their restless march. But why had this happened now, when the settlement had clung on for centuries before? Climatologist H. H. Lamb proposed that major periods of coastal sand movement coincided with, and perhaps were caused by, some of the coldest decades of the Little Ice Age, which Scotland saw from roughly 1645 to 1715. This period saw heavier storms and stronger winds than the area had known driving larger quantities of sand up from Quendale Beach. This also seems to have coincided with changes to farming practices and the introduction of rabbits to the mainland of Shetland in the 14 or 1500s. This non-native species thrived on the island and it's been suggested that they may have weakened vegetation around the settlement through burrowing and grazing although the inhabitants of Brew wouldn't have realised. These grasses surrounding the township played a vital role in breaking the winds and abating the advancing sands. Without this natural barrier, and in a period of uncommonly severe weather, the stage was set for Brew's destruction. The slow motion catastrophe they were facing became irreversible. And so the people of the township left their homes to be swallowed by the hungry dunes. There's an interesting footnote in the story of Brew. Archaeologists working at the site discovered that in the years since its abandonment, it appears that somebody returned to Brew, digging down into and occupying a submerged outbuilding and building a rudimentary staircase to allow them easier traversal over the dunes. Who this person was and why they returned to this forsaken place remains a mystery. But Brew is not the only place in Scotland to have suffered this same suffocating fate. Located between Nairn and Finhorn Bay in Murray on the east coast of Scotland, the barony of Culban and its estate, owned by the Kinnaird family until the end of the 17th century, was by all accounts one of the most fertile pieces of land in all of Scotland. Known as the Garden and Granary of Murray, Across the estate's 3,600 acres were some 16 farms and numerous small crofts, all returning a handsome income for the mansion house of Kinnaird. Of its bounty, Charles Rampini writes in his 1897 A History of Murray and Nairn, 
no matter what other estates suffered from late frosts or protracted droughts, the crops of Culban never failed. It is said that one year a heavy crop of barley was reaped, though not a drop of rain had fallen since it was sown. Despite this abundance, it seems that the coastline around Culban had been changing for many years, moving sand further and further inland at around the same time as similar events were occurring in Brew and Shetland. But rather than the slow devastation which engulfed Brew, the barony of Culban faced its end in a single season, some would even suggest in a single night. In the autumn of 1694, terrific storms blew in from the west, suddenly and with little warning. George Bain described the onrush of storm and sand in The Culban Sands or the story of a buried estate. A man ploughing had to desert his plough in the middle of the furrow. The reapers in a field of late barley had to leave without finishing their work. In a few hours the plough and the barley were buried beneath the sand. The drift, like a mighty river, came on steadily and ruthlessly, grasping field after field and enshrouding every object in a mantle of sand. In terrible gusts, the wind carried the sand amongst the dwelling houses of the people, sparing neither the hut of the cotter nor the mansion of the laird. It is said that in the morning following this storm, the people of the estate had to dig their way out of their houses in order to escape. They managed to rescue their livestock and move to safer ground, however the storm returned. Not only did it continue to bury the houses and fields of Culban, but it also choked the mouth of the nearby Findhorn River, causing mass flooding and destroying the old village of Findhorn. After the storm was done, the landscape was totally altered. Not a trace of the barony of Culban remained. In its place, a shifting sea of treacherous sand. It's likely that the combined factors of human error and changing climate, which caused the destruction of Brew, were also at play in the fate of Culban. However, many legends have arisen since as to what really caused the Garden of Murray to be wiped off the face of the earth in a single night. In all of them, Laird Alexander Kinnaird, Baron of Culban, does not sit high in the teller's estimation. In one tale, it is said that the Laird was not satisfied by the work done on his estate in six of the seven days in the week. He commanded that his people plough and reap on Sunday as well, breaking the Sabbath. The sandstorms which followed were divine retribution for Kinnaird, demanding his workers break the sanctity of Sunday. If this is to be believed, it is unfortunate that the collateral damage to the people of Gulban seems far greater than that which was visited upon their laird. Another tale, a historical conspiracy theory, 
tells that Margaret, the maid of Norway, who inherited the Scottish crown through her mother, did not, in fact, die in the Orkney Islands, but was kidnapped by pirates on the high seas and kept for many years as a prisoner by the Laird of Kinnaird. However, Margaret's death and burial are well documented and she lived some 500 years before the sands would devour Culban. Either she was cursed with an extremely long life, or the supernatural retribution her imprisonment invoked was severely delayed in its execution. A final legend tells how the Laird of Culban was so obsessed with playing cards that he challenged the devil to a game a game which so engrossed him that he did not see the sands devouring his barony, nor even notice when the mansion that he played in was swallowed by a dune. According to this legend, he's still playing the devil to this day in the heart of a sand dune, and will continue to play until the end of time. This legend was popularised in a poem by Eliza Willoughby in the 1870s, which, uncommonly for a woman of her class at the time, was written in Scots Doric. The last three stanzas evoke the scene well. The wind it blew and the sand it flew all through the murk, murk night. But the darksome guest he played the best for a soul by the taper's light. The morning dawning, the wind went down and the sand it blew no more. And all the country round about was like a vast seashore. O then, Kinnaird locht loud and long, Ye fool wife, say your say, For I would play with a deal himsel Until the judgment day. Regardless of which you choose to believe, Fact or fiction, truth or legend, the Culban Sands continue to shift and change to this day. Charles Rampini writes, The sand is of such extreme lightness and fineness that the merest breath of wind sets it moving. A slight breeze raises the whole surface into a whirling tempest of sand. He goes on to tell one more legend about hidden treasure in the Culban Sands. More than a century ago, a party of smugglers had landed a contraband cargo and hidden it at the base of one of the sandhills, meaning to remove it on the morrow. When they returned at daylight, this particular sandhill had disappeared. The whole face of the landscape was altered. And though since then repeated searches have been made, the smugglers' cache has never been found. Some 64 kilometres west of the Sound of Harris, the archipelago of St Kilda maintains its tenuous grip on the sky, resisting the restless pool of the Atlantic at its shores. It's suggested that ancient Celtic people saw these islands as the gates to their earthly paradise, the land under the waves over the brink of the western seas. In the late 14th century, John Furdon described St Kilda as being on the margins of the world. And in his poem, St Kilda's Parliament, Douglas Dunn invokes St Kilda as 
the moody jailer of the wild Atlantic. Throughout the ages, the islands of St Kilda have been evocative for all those who glimpsed them on the horizon or were brave enough to undertake the voyage across the stormy seas to them. Though battered by high winds and fierce waves, the islands are rich in wildlife, containing roughly half of the UK's puffin population and the largest colony of fulmers in the British Isles. Archaeological evidence suggests that St Kilda has been inhabited more or less continuously since Neolithic times, although visitors to the islands from the outside world were uncommon, as the journey there across the Atlantic is long and arduous and almost impossible in autumn and winter due to the fierce and unpredictable storms which beset the islands. Christianity attempted to take hold on the islands in the early 18th century through the work of missionaries from the mainland. However, the islanders' isolation and dependence on the bounty of the natural world meant that for a long while after the tentative introduction of Christianity, their belief system continued to bear as much a relationship to Druidism as it did to Christianity. Indeed, the existence of druidic altars and rings of standing stones were recorded on the islands well into the 18th century. It wasn't until the 1830s, when regular ministry and charitable donations to the islanders from the mainland resulted in a more lasting acceptance of Christianity. These missionaries also introduced formal education to the islands by building a school on Hirta, the largest of the islands in the archipelago. The isolation of the St Kildans from the mainland in ways geographic, religious, social and political cannot be overstated. An example of this can be seen in a rumour which emerged after the Battle of Culloden. It was said that after the battle, Bonnie, Prince, Charlie and some of his fellow Jacobites had fled to St Kilda. On hearing this rumour, British soldiers mounted an expedition to search the islands for the rogue prince. Fearing at first that the soldiers were pirates, the islanders fled to shelter in caves to the west. When the soldiers finally persuaded the islanders that they were not there for plunder, they discovered that amazingly they had heard neither of the prince nor of King George II. Martin Martin writes in his 1703 book A Description of the Western Isles of Scotland, a wonderful description of an islander's reaction to being taken to the mainland for the first time. He recounts the islander's disbelief and incredulity at what he saw, as if he had been transported to an alien world where even the fabric of their clothes, the materials of their homes and their methods of locomotion were beyond comprehension to him. So great was his amazement that the islander requested that his guide hold his hand as they walked around the streets of Glasgow. A notable feature of life on St Kilda was their daily Parliament, a meeting held in the street where the day's activities would be decided upon. As a large portion of their diet revolved around the native seabird population, much of the food gathering involved climbing the high cliffs and sea stacks around the island in order to collect eggs from the nests there. 
As such, St Kildans were noted for their agility and adeptness at climbing surfaces, onlookers often perceived as unclimbable. As the world marched into the age of modernity, St Kilda too began to find itself dragged into the affairs of the modern world. Although the lives of the St Kildans were at the mercy of the weather and the sea, in the end it was the establishing of regular communications with and visitations from the outside world in the 19th and 20th centuries which led to the downfall of the island's population. After the outbreak of the First World War, a signal station was established on Hirta. In response, a German submarine surfaced in Village Bay on the morning of the 15th of May 1918 and began shelling the island. The station was destroyed and the manse, church and village storehouse were damaged, although, thankfully, no lives were lost. In order to safeguard the islands from further attacks, a 4-inch Mark III QF gun was placed overlooking Village Bay. However, it was never used. Although the islands suffered no further bombardments, a slower kind of devastation was taking hold. Regular contact with the outside world had been established and the island began to develop its own money-based economy. This made life easier for the islanders in some ways, but it also made them less self-sufficient. Further to this, influenza claimed a number of lives on the islands, and in the 1920s, soil contamination from lead and other pollutants caused a succession of crop failures. The population of the islands dwindled after the war, with many young men leaving for the mainland, and by 1928, the population of St Kilda was just 37, less than half of what it had been a decade prior. It was decided collectively by the remaining islanders that they had no choice but to evacuate to the mainland as their way of life could no longer sustain them. Two days prior to the evacuation, all of the cattle and sheep were ferried off of Erta for sale on the mainland and on the morning of the 29th of August, 1930, the remaining St Kildans boarded the Harebell, which would take them to Morvern, on the west coast of the Scottish mainland. Charles Maclean writes in his 1979 book, Island on the Edge of the World, the story of St Kilda, The morning of the evacuation promised a perfect day. The sun rose out of a calm and sparkling sea and warmed the impassive cliffs of Oisheville. The sky was hopelessly blue and the sight of Hirta, green and pleasant as the island of so many careless dreams, made parting all the more difficult. Observing tradition, the islanders left an open bible and a small pile of oats in each house, locked all of the doors and at 7am boarded the harebell. Although exhausted by the strain and hard work of the last few days, they were reported to have stayed cheerful throughout the operation. But as the long antler of dune fell back onto the horizon and the familiar outline of the island grew faint, the severing of an ancient tie became a reality and the St Kildans gave way to tears.
further still out into the Atlantic Ocean, some 300 kilometres due west of St Kilda, a lone granite skerry rises from the water. It is an uninhabited interruption of rock between sea and sky called Rockall, a name of uncertain origin but with possible connections to the old Norse words for mountain and foaming sea. In Irish mythology, legend tells how the giant Finn McCool tore off a piece of Ireland to throw at a Scottish foe. However, his aim was poor and he missed his target, the chunk of land instead falling into the sea, forming the island of Rockall. So lonely and desolate is it, that it has been suggested that the island was the inspiration for the setting of William Golding's novel Pincher Martin. Being so isolated and inhospitable, this seems plausible. However, there are no marooned mariners there today. The island's sole permanent inhabitants are periwinkles, although seabirds will also use it as a place to rest in the summer months. Due to its isolation, Rockall has been the subject of some derision over the years. In 1971, the Labour politician Lord Kennett said of Rockall, There can be no place more desolate, despairing and awful. William Ross, Labour MP for Kilmarnock, claimed that more people have landed on the moon than have landed on Rockall. And in 1955, when Rockall was annexed by the British Crown, notably the final territorial expansion of the British Empire, naturalist James Fisher called it the most isolated small rock in the oceans of the world. Rockall is referenced in Martin Martin's 1703, a description of the Western Isles of Scotland, where he states that it is a small rock 60 leagues to the westward of St Kilda. The inhabitants of this place call it Rockabara. This name, given by the inhabitants of St Kilda, is particularly curious as it is also the name of a phantom island in Gaelic legend, Rockabara. However, folklorist Otta F. Swire locates this phantom island in her wonderfully colourful 1961 book, Sky, the Islands and its Legends, not to the west of St Kilda, but southeast to Loch Dunvegan on the Isle of Skye. Rockabara is said to only have been seen twice by human eyes. The first being to salute the coming of St Columba, the saint credited with spreading Christianity from Ireland to Scotland. It is said that the island has been seen a second time by human eyes, although when or by whom is not known. The legend says, when Rockabara appears again, the world is due for destruction. Swire writes further of Rockall, Rockabara's earthly twin, in The Outer Hebrides and Their Legends. She states that some believe that Rockall was the Celtic paradise variously known as the Isle of the Blessed, Chir Nanak, the land of youth, the land under the waves, and the fields of the brave. Rockall is also named as the fishing bank of the Great Ones. Swire tells us that although some suppose these Great Ones to be whales, 
they were in fact creatures larger than a full-grown whale, and larger also than the fearsome Kjandran crow, a mighty sea creature sometimes believed to be the more familiar kraken. A Gaelic saying goes, Seven herring a salmon's fill, seven salmon a seal's fill, seven seals a large whale's fill, seven whales a Kjandran crow's fill, seven Kjandran crow, feast of the great beast of the ocean himself. Legend tells us that long ago there were three great fish in the sea, larger than any other living thing. One ruled the Minch and Hebridean waters. One ruled the seas further north, those sailed by Norse longships. And one is supposed to have ruled the Irish Sea. These enormous creatures were as virtuous as they were large and fed on seaweed only. They were kind to the fish and crabs living in the seaweed and would signal to them that they were about to begin eating to allow these tiny creatures time to escape. However, one day the Great One of the Hebrides was late for his supper. Delayed by trying to mediate a dispute between a dogfish and a rather rude little crab. Irritated and hungry, the Great One forgot to sound his usual warning to the inhabitants of a kelp forest and accidentally consumed a clutch of herring eggs and newly hatched fry. The Great One was amazed at how good the kelp tasted, and when he realised this was because he'd eaten the eggs and baby fish, he decided to become a carnivore and cannibal, pursuing and eating all of his terrified subjects. In particular, the Great One enjoyed eating large animals, such as whales and the Kjandran crow, although he found them to be somewhat difficult to handle. So one day, the Great One decided to wrap himself around a rock in the middle of the ocean, Rockall, and use it to anchor himself so he could get a better purchase on his prey. The Great One fell asleep, wrapped around Rockall, and when he woke up he was terribly hungry. Drifting just above his nose, he saw a juicy-looking fin, so he snapped at it and began to chew. It was very delicious indeed, but unfortunately he did not realise it was the fin of his own tail, and he ate and ate until he had half devoured himself. The Great One died soon after, wrapped around Rockall, consumed by his own greed, and the sea was left without a king. Oil is an extraordinary substance. It makes people do extraordinary things. There's an almost cosmic horror in the idea that this sludge, the heated and pressurised remains of countless flora and fauna millennia dead, has sparked wars, and with every moment that passes, it accelerates our potential demise at the hands of a destabilised climate. Perhaps one day, millennia from now, if the world has survived, whatever beings have inherited the earth will unearth the crude, brackish oil which our bodies have left behind and start the awful cycle once more. Let us pray they do not make the same mistakes we have. In the early 1970s, 
an oil crisis gripped the world. Prices skyrocketed, economies contracted, and an energy crisis loomed, not entirely unlike the situation we find ourselves in today. However, the discovery of new oil fields in the North Sea around this time appeared to provide a lifeline for the United Kingdom, allowing them to produce oil themselves rather than import it. As the oil industry began to expand in Britain, sites were chosen for the different roles they would play in this potential new oil boom. Among these was a site on the shores of Loch Fyne, a sea loch off the Firth of Clyde on the west coast of Scotland. It was selected for its sheltered port and access to the deepest coastal waters in the UK. It would be the location of a new construction yard and dry dock for the building and maintenance of oil rigs. However, the nearby settlements were deemed too small to accommodate the workforce that would be required to staff these facilities. And so, in 1975, construction work began on a new village on the east shore of Loch Fyne. The village of Polfail was designed by Thomas Smith, Gibb and Pate architects. It was intended to house around 500 workers who would staff the dry dock and construction yard. The village comprised a central administrative building, a laundry and services building, and 19 outlying accommodation blocks. Construction work was completed in 1977, and buildings were outfitted with everything the workers would require, from washing machines to clothes hangers. But the workers never came. The speculation and future forecasting, which had anticipated the need for such facilities in such a place, did not square up with the cost implications of such a project. And so, as is often the case in unpredictable boom times, the work went elsewhere. But the village? It remained. It was a place filled with all the things needed to make it into a home, except people. Time and weather became its sole custodians. Brick, plaster and concrete welcomed only water, damp and decay. Washing machines stood rusting in derelict rooms. Clothes hangers hung still in empty wardrobes. Keys swayed gently in the breeze, waiting for hands that would never collect them. Looking at pictures of Polfail, there is a pervading sadness to its crumbling walls, a desolation to its emptiness, which doesn't quite match that of a place once inhabited but abandoned. It is a manifestation of thwarted hope. The absence of life of human stories in Polfail remind us how capricious the industries and agencies which purportedly support us can be. The mouldering plaster and rotting timbers show us, without care, without attention, how quickly our endeavours fall to ruin. Can somewhere be called a ghost town if no one has ever lived there? What is it then that we find unsettling about a place like this? It's almost as if there is some hidden underlying force keeping us away. As time passes and the possibility of repair, of reclamation, ebbs, the feeling grows that in the face of whatever it is that lurks there, or repels us with its absence, we would rather let a place like this continue to rot than attempt to build lives there. 
and it speaks in the way all ghost towns do of the nature of capitalism to the illusory promises made by industry and economy of fortune and prosperity that this place will be the centre that the world will turn from here until the forecast changes the winds shift and we miss the tide the people have gone elsewhere and a dream moulders in 2009 the artist collective Agents of Change staged an intervention at Paul Fail. Six artists spent three days at the site painting and graffitiing over 75 works. They breathed life into the place, a subversive kind of life, finding a use for the space that industry could not, giving it the stories which people never did. The artists used the crumbling textures of the village as a canvas, acting and reacting to the eroded walls and cracked floors. A series of squat, fey creatures seem curious about the space, exploring and playing in its nooks and crannies. One speaks the words, No, you won't get a penny of the oil. The haunting words, Lost, Future adorn an empty tile wall in the laundry building, seeming to embody the spirit of the place. Beautifully colourful human faces emerge from the sides of buildings, the size of demigods. The doorless openings of two ruined washing machines become the empty eyes of a cartoon face. Although many of the works are abstract or geometric pieces, using colour and form to enrich the space, the emphasis on entities inhabiting Paul Fail is unmistakable. Agents of change made it their purpose to populate and reclaim a village which industry abandoned. They gave the place a purpose which it had been denied for decades. Thanks to this intervention, for the first time in its existence, Paul Fail began to receive regular visitors. Among them were artists, keen to add their own contributions to the emerging stories, as well as tourists curious to experience new ways of seeing the village and the new kind of life which had taken hold there. Paul Fail no longer stands today. It was finally demolished in 2016. It's hard to say whether it's sad or not. Can a story have an ending if it's missing a beginning? But the dream of what Paul Fail could have been is finally allowed to rest. However, the place will not remain quiet for long. A redevelopment scheme will see the construction of a craft distillery on the site. Industry once again attempts to capitalise on the space. Perhaps the vagaries of time, weather and economy will be more accommodating this time round. Faint and clear, there are commonalities between each of the stories told in this episode. Lessons may be learned and conclusions can be reached about our place on this earth and our impact upon it. Let us hope the final sighting of Rockabara is not near at hand. This land has nurtured us for countless millennia. Does it belong to us? Or do we belong to it? I leave you with the words of Norman McCaig 
and his poem Man in Ascent. Who possesses this landscape? The man who bought it, or I who am possessed by it? False questions, for this landscape is masterless and intractable in any terms that are human. Thanks for listening. Until next time, goodbye. That was Gordon Stewart. This episode was written, produced, and radiophonically designed by me, Nick Cole Hamilton. I'd like to acknowledge a number of sources used in the writing elements of this episode. Links to those mentioned where possible will be included in the episode description. Firstly, the Shetland Islands Climate and Settlement Project. The research that they have undertaken is fascinating and was invaluable in writing the section on brew. Next, the Colbin Stories exhibition and its accompanying website was an absolute trove of detail about the historical, social and cultural impacts of the changing landscape around Colbin in Murray. The works of Otta F. Swire heavily influenced the writing of this episode. I can't express enough how engaging and thorough her work is in tracing the myths and legends of various areas of the highlands and islands of Scotland. It's well worth seeking out her work. She writes in the most entertaining and informative way. I can't recommend it enough. Finally, before signing off, I just wanted to add something about the episode scheduling in general. Originally, when we conceived of this podcast, we intended to put out an episode roughly once per month. That's a target we rarely achieve, and at this point I think realistically it's not one we'll meet often moving forward. It really just boils down to us all being somewhat oversubscribed in other areas. That, and the fact that these episodes take so long to produce. I easily put 40 hours into the making of this episode alone. I really hope that comes across. Writing and recording the episodes is one thing, but the production side of things is really what eats time. Audio fidelity is something I'm really keen to get right, and the music and sound design that you hear in the episodes is all produced by me, bespoke, for each episode. So it takes a while. But Tales from Weird Scotland is something that we really enjoy making, and we really hope you enjoy listening to it as well. So even though it takes a while between episodes, we're still hoping to keep churning them out. If you do enjoy them, please do get in touch and let us know. It's so nice to hear from people who've listened and enjoyed. It really does make our day. Anyway, as ever, this has been a You Better Run Media production. Join us again soon for more tales from Weird Scotland.